If you would, please turn your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 5. And this morning we are looking at verses 17 through 26, or at least we will begin to look at verses uh, 17 through 26. So Luke uh, chapter 5, uh, picking it up in verse 17. And God's word says to us this morning that on one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and even from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen Extraordinary things today. This is the reading of God's good, perfect, inspired word of God. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again in prayer before your throne of grace as, as needy men and women and children, greatly in need of your help to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. And I come before you, Lord, as a simple servant, uh, made out of dust, made out of clay, uh, asking for your help as I seek to, however imperfectly, uh, bring forth your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to do so in such a way that uh, Christ is glorified and that we would all leave here like the paralyzed man, glorifying you, amazed, filled with awe at the extraordinary things you have done. Lord, please do that for your namesake and your glory and for the good of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled this message in light of verse 26 and how it ends. We have seen extraordinary things today. I, that's what I titled this message, Ex extraordinary things. Extraordinary uh, meaning unexpected, unbelievable, uncommon, uh, extraordinary meaning uh, things that are uh, beyond expectation, out of the ordinary. And as, as I studied this, this text uh, this week, uh, there are three things uh, that jumped out at me as extraordinary. 
Those three things are, number one, we have the four faithful men. And I know our, our text doesn't mention four men, but if you look at the parallel in Mark, it mentions four men who carry the, their friend on a stretcher. So the first extraordinary thing are these four men who, filled with faith, will stop at nothing to bring their friend to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second extraordinary thing is that Jesus heals this paralyzed man. It says immediately he gets up, takes his mat, and walks home glorifying God. But the most extraordinary thing about this text, though, is that Jesus forgives sin. Those three extraordinary things are in our text, and this morning my plan is to get through that first one, and Lord willing, next week to hit those next two. So this morning, the first point, and really the only point this morning, is that faith finds a way. Faith finds a way, and we, we see in our text that Jesus is continuing his mission. Remember from Luke chapter 4, after he's, he's baptized and he goes in temptation and, and defeats uh, the temptations of, of the devil and the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word, that he's, he's filled with the Spirit and empowered with the Spirit uh, to be on mission uh, for the Father, to, in the words of Luke 4, 18 and 19, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty for the oppressed, and so he's been traveling from town to town to town, preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. And as he has traveled preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he has done many incredible miracles. He has exercised demons. Uh, we talked about that a few months back. We, we see his authority over nature as he, as he fills the nets, uh, making the nets to begin to break with fish, right? And the boats even begin to sink. Uh, there's such a payload of fish. And last week we saw how he cleansed the leper. So Jesus is going about preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing the sick, and unsurprisingly, his fame is growing. He's gaining in notoriety, and he gets the attention of the Pharisees, and teachers of the law who, according to our text in verse 17, had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now this is the first time in the book of Luke that mention is made of the Pharisees. So we're just going to take a little bit of time to get acquainted with them. The Pharisees are one of four major sects within Judaism. You have the Pharisees, you have the Essenes, uh, you also have the Sadducees, and you have the Zealots. Uh, they originated 2nd uh, century uh, BC and quickly became very, very influential among the people. According to Josephus, the, the well-known Jewish historian uh, who's somewhat contemporary with Christ, he estimates that in Jesus' day there are roughly 6,000 of these Pharisees. So not a large number, but extremely influential. And they were the conservative theologians of the day. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the existence of angels and demons. Uh, they believed in predestination and human accountability. Their great desire was to understand the law and put it into everyday practice. 
According to Leon Scholar, or Leon Morris, uh, an Old Testament scholar, uh, they were so anxious about the law and not breaking God's commandment that they would, quote, put a fence about the law. They put a fence around our hedge about the law. They're so zealous for the law that that's, that's what they would do to make sure they keep it and didn't break it. And so, for example, when the scriptures say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's pretty straightforward, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They put a fence around that, which is to say, they took a step farther and said, well, we're not even going to mention his name. You see what they did? They were so zealous for the law, and not wanting to break it, that they would put that hedge around it and say, well, the scriptures say this, that we're going to take one step more and, and make sure we don't do this. We're not even going to say his name. Now, the problem with that is that has the, the effect of making religion, religion external. It externalizes religion. It ended up with people putting a lot of effort into conforming outwardly without ever inwardly being devoted to God the Father. And so they may never mention his name, but it's only outward obedience. It's not done out of love for the Father. It's done out of obedience uh, to uh, these extra rules and laws that the Pharisees established. So, very sadly, Phariseeism quickly became legalistic and very, very burdensome <clears throat> upon the people. And sadly, many of the hypocrites, the Pharisees, were hypocrites themselves. They did not practice what they preached, leading to Jesus scathingly rebuking them multiple times in the scriptures. Luke is very interested in the Pharisees. He mentions them 25 times in his gospel. <clears throat> and what you'll see is that they are, from the very beginning, antagonistic to Christ, and they spearhead opposition against him. We see that in our own text. We're going to see that in the next few texts. In fact, just, just look uh, in the next few verses in verse 27, uh, where <clears throat> Jesus calls Levi and has a great feast, verse 29. And what do the Pharisees do in verse 30? They grumble saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then dropping down to verse 33, they begin to question Jesus and fasting uh, and, and continue to grumble and complain. And then if you drop down to chapter 6, it says in verse 1 that Jesus on the Sabbath was going through the grain fields and his disciples pluck uh, some heads of grain, and the, the Pharisees are angered. Verse 2, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then dropping down to verse 6, on a, on a whole other Sabbath, Jesus in the synagogue, he heals a man with a withered hand. There's the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 7, watching him to see whether he would do it. And when he does, uh, they get upset. Ongoing opposition against Christ from the Pharisees. Uh, so much so that uh, Barclay, William Barclay writes, these are only two verses, uh, referencing verses 17 and 18. But as we read them, we must pause, for this indeed is a milestone, he writes, for, quote, the scribes and the Pharisees had arrived on the scene. The opposition, which would never be satisfied until it had killed Jesus, has now emerged into the open. 
That's quite the, quite the thought. That's the opposition that will not be satisfied until Christ is hanging on that cross has just emerged. They've, they showed themselves in our text. Now, Catch that phrase in verse 17, right? It talks about the Pharisees and the teachers. Then at the end of verse 17, it says, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And you be- begin to sense the storm that's brewing, right? Here's the scribes and, and the, the Pharisees, the, the resident theologians and experts of the day. They've gathered from every town and they're listening to Jesus they're there to criticize Jesus. They're there to pigeonhole him and find all that he's saying and doing that's wrong. <clears throat> and Jesus is surging with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's ready to heal. He's ready to do that which will offend them. <laughs> and which he knows will collide with them and lead to uh, increasing opposition with them. And will lead to his own death on the cross. The atmosphere in verse 17, if you can just kind of get yourself in there, it's electric, right? And, and the storm is brewing. You can sense something extraordinary is about to happen. That's the idea. That, that's, that's the feeling or the sense of verse 17. And so verse 18 says, behold, right? So Luke really wants to draw our attention to this. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So again, in in the parallel in Mark, it tells us there are four of these men. These four men have a friend who's paralyzed. We don't know much about this man. We don't know if he was married, his age, or his name, anything like that. But we do know that he's paralyzed. And again, if you can, like we tried to do last week with with the the leper, if you can just try and put yourself in his shoes and the pain of being paralyzed. They didn't have wheelchairs or ramps or handicapped parking places like we do today, right? There was no way that he could earn a living. This man was totally and utterly dependent upon his friends to to move him around, right? Right? He can't can't move on his own. Anywhere he needs to go, he needs to be carried. He couldn't dress himself or take care of his own bodily functions. It's, It's a hard situation. It's a wretched condition. He's paralyzed, and quite frankly, he's on his way to the grave. He has nothing to look forward to in his life other than laying on a mat and looking up unless somehow someone propped him up somehow, but he has nothing to look forward to than laying on that mat and waiting for the grave. That's his life. That's the rest of his life. And we, don't, again, don't know how old he was, but it's a wretched condition, yes? A wretched condition. How blessed he was to have these four friends who bring him to Jesus. And yet, despite all their efforts, they're blocked at every attempt Uh, by the large crowd. It says in verse 19 that finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they had flat roofs in that day, and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So, So these friends have, you know, many, many different ways appear to try and get their friend in to see Jesus, but they're blocked by the crowd. They can't get in through the main door. The windows probably aren't big enough. Probably wasn't a good idea to try and body surf him uh, into Jesus. Uh, And so this light bulb kind of goes off. Hey, let's go up on the roof. 
Uh, again, in that day, it was very common to have flat roofs. Um, they would use those roofs to do laundry, to do prayer, uh, to do a few different kind of uh, everyday tasks just to find fresh air. Uh, they would even eat up there, as, as we know from the Apostle Peter later in Acts. Uh, and what they do when they get on that roof is they start tearing away the roof, right? Start ripping a hole in the roof. I can imagine that caused quite a bit of commotion within the house, and it must have been a large house. It sounds like it was a large house from, from the text. But I can imagine the rafters probably started shaking. I can imagine uh, dust and debris falling down in the crowd, and people kind of starting to look up, and eventually there's a hole, and probably four sweaty guys looking in there. And somehow, somehow get this paralyzed guy in a mat down in there, and they, they land him, plop him right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Verse 20, he says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. It's my contention this morning that these four men and this paralyzed man are a powerful example of biblical faith. Again, Jesus Christ himself says that in verse 20, when he saw their faith, the faith of the men and the paralyzed man, when he sees their faith, and I think what we learn here is while it's not easy to climb the stairs and remove the roof and lower the friend to Jesus, that took a great deal of effort and ingenuity. That What we learn from this is that faith is not passive. Faith is more than an attitude. The faith is action. Faith is action. Faith works. In fact, James would tell us that faith without works is what? Dead. Faith is not passive. Faith works. Faith is in action. Faith makes a way. Faith works through love. These men believe in the power of Christ. And in faith, they go to the limit to bring their friend to Christ. Without faith, they wouldn't have done any of this. Without faith, they wouldn't have considered making the journey. They wouldn't have considered unroofing the, the section of the roof. They, they wouldn't have had the stubborn determination and the creative ingenuity uh, to bring their friend to Christ. This is what faith does. I think this is a major point of the text, that faith finds a way. That faith is active, that faith is a connecting grace, and that faith connects us to Christ. And faith is knowing, it is knowing that Jesus is able and willing to save, and then living in such a way that shows that to be true. Faith isn't just knowing that he's able to save, but faith results in works, in living, and acting in a way that is in accordance to what you know to be true. And we see that in this text. And as such, I believe this story is a powerful example of Christ-like compassion. <clears throat> These men loved their suffering brother and did everything in their power to get their friend the help that he needed. And I, I want this text to be a, a rich encouragement to each of us this morning but especially for, for those of us who are involved in, in caring for others who are perhaps physically disabled, 
caring for others with, with special needs, caring for others with really any kind of, of physical problem, I think this text should be a great encouragement to you. I, I think of when a, a spouse uh, faithfully and lovingly serve their, serves their loved one, uh, when their loved one has a debilitating uh, issues such as perhaps Alzheimer's or, or MS, or when adult children take care of their aged parents. I think of, of Mike sitting right here as he's taking care of Mikey, and, and Wanda, of course, and, and the family taking care of Mikey and just the physical uh, duress that's been there. I, of course, think of, of Chad. He's here somewhere. There he is, Chad and Gina, taking care of Gina this past week, uh, loving her and caring for her, and the many in our church family who have been sending meals. I, th I think of Rose Leibrink, and that Clarine was able to go to the hospital with her, and again, preparing meals for her. These are wonderful examples of faith in action. A faith that has Christ-like compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need and stopping at nothing to love them and help them and serve them. I think there are implications here for churches, church bodies as a whole, and, and the actual buildings, that, that making sure our buildings are accessible to those who are physically disabled, yes? Yes. And as a church family, being sensitive to those families with members uh, who may have learning or mental or sensory disabilities. That many, many families who have members uh, within who have sensory disabilities or mental disabilities are very, very hesitant, reluctant to come to church because they're fearful of how they will be perceived. Will they be accepted? Will they be welcomed? Will they belong? And churches need to wrestle with how they can minister with the love of Christ to those kind of families and encourage them. Again, I think our text is a wonderful encouragement to those caring for the needs of others, especially those suffering from disability, and that is a great uh, privilege and responsibility of God's people. I think it's a great picture of the gospel. Please, please hear this this morning that Every human being is paralyzed. We're all paralyzed. All of us, myself included, of course, have been negatively impacted by the fall of man, by sin. Each of us, every moment of every day, apart from God's grace, continue to fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, for every one of us, apart from God's grace, inability is our great disability. Did you hear that? Inability, apart from God's grace, is our great disability. We are spiritually paralyzed. We are, apart from Christ, spiritually helpless and hopeless. And what did Christ do for us in rich love and compassion and mercy? He did that for us, which we can never do for ourselves. He rescued us. He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us with his very own blood. And he rose from the dead. He rose for us, and we rose with him by faith and trust in him. 
Jesus in his grace overcame our spiritual disability. And so when we love others who are physically hurting or physical disability or, or just whatever that might be, when we love them and serve them and care for them, that's a picture of the what? The gospel. That's faith in action. As we seek to love them with the love of Christ and in doing so, point them to Christ. No matter our abilities or gifts or disabilities, we are all made in God's image. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made, and we must therefore seek to welcome and love everyone just as these four men loved their paralyzed friends. I'm reminded of when Valerie and I served together up in, up in Newberry, uh, the true north, the frigid north, where these, these temperatures, man, these are nothing. This is, this is like springtime. I'm reminded up there of this wonderful, wonderful lady named Burley uh, who had suffered from various strokes and because of that was handicapped and was wheelchaired. And this wonderful family in our church who actually just spoke with a couple weeks ago, they, they called me out of the blue. Uh, they went and bought a van that was wheelchair accessible and had a wheelchair lift they did that just so that they could minister to Verley and drive her around, but especially to bring her to church. And our church was not handicap accessible in any way, shape, or form. The building, I mean. If you were to walk into that building, well, I guess they teared it down now, but as, as you walked in, if you wanted to get into the auditorium, you had to go upstairs. If you need to go to the bathroom, you need to go upstairs. Needless to say, at the end of the service, a number of people would just book out because they had to go home and use the bathroom. <laughs> Didn't want to climb those stairs, I don't blame them. And so what we did for Verley for many, many, many weeks, whenever they would bring her, is a group of men, four or five men, would get around and pick her up in her wheelchair and pick her up those stairs and wheel her in, then we'd wheel her out and we'd breathe a sigh of relief every week that we didn't slip or that she didn't fall. Why? Because faith finds a way. Because faith loves others. Faith cares for others. Faith strives to bring their friends to Christ. This is part of what it means when we say as a church that we belong. It's about having the heart of the master and, and helping all who come here to be loved with the love of Christ. It's about recognizing we're all needy and we all are needed. Belong is a part of our pathway, is about meeting people where they are, being considerate of them, helping them become more like Christ emotionally, spiritually, and physically, supporting them. You see how that comes out of the text? And so the challenge for us is what are some practical ways we can do this? Do you know uh, someone who is perhaps bedridden or someone who's in the nursing home or in the hospital, someone who's, who's hurting physically, uh, maybe a family with members who have learning or sensory or emotional or mental disabilities? I'd encourage you to be mindful of that. Keep your eyes open for that, to, to think about that and, and to consider how you can encourage uh, those people, just as these four men do in our text. We can't fix their disability, but we can show up. We can meet their physical needs. We can lovingly listen. We can lovingly encourage, and we can absolutely bring them before the throne of grace in prayer to the one who can help them and strengthen them more than we ever could. 
And so these four men are a great example of Christian compassion, of faith in action, and it's extraordinary. But these four men are something else for us this morning as we continue to consider this idea that faith finds a way, that not only do these four men encourage me and I hope you in Christ-like compassion, but it also encourages us to be fervent in our evangelism, to be fervent in our witnessing, to be fervent to bring the lost to Christ. It is a powerful example, again, of Christian evangelism. I am deeply encouraged and challenged by these four men. And so far as I know, not one of them was anything special, you know, anything significant. Their names aren't even mentioned. Yet these four men, whoever they are, these four nobodies, I think rank among some of the most important men in the Bible. Why would I say that? I say that because they stop at nothing to bring their friend to Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it is to be a Christian? We're just a bunch of nobodies pointing to the ultimate somebody. They weren't put off by the crowds. They didn't come up with excuses. Man, that would have been easy, right? Oh my word, look at this crowd. We're not doing this today. They didn't say, let's wait until later. No, instead, in faith, they bring their friend to Jesus at any cost and with great creativity. And this is a, a startling contrast to the Pharisees, right? Those Pharisees. They came to spy. They came to criticize. They were heresy hunters, right? And they have these eagle eyes looking for anything that doesn't quite sound right. And meanwhile, they're blind to the the man before them full of grace and truth. These Pharisees did not come to learn. They already knew it all. They had their minds made up. And they're looking to see if Jesus conforms to them. And so the, honestly, one of the questions that this text is asking each one of us is, which one are, are you? Are, are you a Pharisee? Are you a sermon critic? Or are you a stretcher carrier? Isn't the, isn't the text asking that of each one of us? Which, which one are you? Are you, are you the Pharisee who, who critiques and finds everything that's wrong? Or are you the stretcher carrier who, who's going to do whatever it takes to bring your friend to the Lord Jesus Christ? And what a thing for these four men desperately trying to get their friend to Jesus, but they can't because the religious people are in the way. The religious people are in the way. They're, they're busy criticizing. They have no time or place for the hurting. May God help me and may God help each one of us here to be stretcher carriers, not sermon critics. God forbid that we spend so much time criticizing that we don't do anything and everything we can in the power of Jesus and in faith in Jesus to bring others to Jesus. We need stretcher carriers who not only talk the talk, but they walk the walk and are willing to rip the roof off houses to get people to Jesus. So in, in the bulls and in those sermon notes, You'll notice in their four eyes, and I'm just trying to make this as practical as I can as I seek to encourage us to be these, these stretcher carriers who will stop at nothing to bring our friends to Jesus Christ. 
I just want to ask you to please do these four things over the next course of month or two. And you can see in, your, in, in, the, in the insert, uh, the outline there, the first one is identify. What I'm asking that everyone here does is that you would identify at least three friends, three neighbors, three, three whoever who you know are lost without faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are still unforgiven. Three friends, three individuals who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you know what they are right now. You can write their names right down. Maybe you need to some, take some time with that later today. But, but please, by the time you go to your growth groups this week, and I hope we're all involved with the growth group, that's a great way to find encouragement in evangelism and also to find teammates to help you evangelize. It's not a solo sport. But identify three individuals who you know need the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next thing is intercede for them. Start praying for them. Intercede. Pray for them every day. Pray for them in particular. Pray for opportunities to uh, talk with them. Opportunities to meet their needs. Maybe they're the leper like we talked about last week. And as you intercede for them... Seek to invest in them. It's the third I, invest. Build the relationship with them. Seek, again, to meet needs in their lives. Spend time with them. Be sensitive to life situations. You know, there, there's life situations where people tend to be more open to the gospel, right? I've, I've shared this with you before. I know it sounds weird and awful, but I, I love to do funerals. Because that's when people are, they, you can't get past it. Typically, the, the casket's right there, or, or, or some sort of remains are right there, and it, you're faced with, that's going to be me one day, right? Death is coming for us all. Christ overcame death. It's just a great time to proclaim the hope and the power and the forgiveness, the resurrection life of Christ. But there are times in your friends' lives when they're more vulnerable to the gospel, times of, like, death of a loved one or a divorce, Maybe they're having marital issues or, or a loved one has gone to jail or a severe injury or illness. Maybe they've had a new baby. Maybe they recently got married. I was able to, to share the gospel with a man who had recently been married. And that's an easy transition to, to shift to. Well, what's going to help your marriage move forward? Where's Christ in your marriage? You know, marriage was his idea. Don't you think he has some good thoughts about how to do marriage? Are you living for Christ? And that was just with a guy who was trying to sell my daughter a car. And I determined you're not going to sell my daughter a car if I'm not going to sell you Jesus. <laughs> and then we invite them. We identify them. We pray and pray and pray for them because salvation belongs to the Lord. We invest in them. But at some point... You need to invite them. And by invite them, I mean you need to share the gospel with them. Walk through the gospel with them. Lovingly, patiently answer their questions. And maybe even invite them to church where they can see this kind of love and faith in action. <clears throat> and let me encourage you, if you are refused, and there's a good chance as you do that you will be refused, to don't let that stop you. I share with you an example of Ernest Reisinger. He was an evangelist, author, pastor. Uh, the way he came to faith is very, very interesting. There's another man named Elmer 
and it's hard for my mind. Sometimes I, I'm bad with names, you know that. And sometimes I, I transverse them and I want to say Elmer or Ernest. So Ernest is the lost one who becomes, over time, a great evangelist and faithful pastor, preacher of God's word. Elmer is just one of these like stretcher carriers who loves the Lord and loves telling people about the Lord. And Elmer, for 52 times, invited Ernest to come to church. And 52 times, Ernest had an excuse and shot him down. It was not until the 53rd time uh, that Ernest uh, came to church, but then he didn't come back for weeks. Can you imagine that? You've invited him 52 times. Every 52 times, he has an, amazingly has an excuse. 53rd time he comes, you're like, yes, this is going to be the time. He comes, never comes back for weeks on end. Uh, by God's grace, eventually Ernest does come to faith in Christ, but guess what Elmer was doing that whole time? He was praying. He was praying. So much so that when finally Ernest comes to faith in Christ, uh, Ernie's wife said to him when he finally met her, uh, she said, so you were Ernie Reisinger. My husband would often come home in the evenings and I had this nice dinner ready for him, but he would go straight to his room and he would start praying and I would listen at the door and he's praying for this guy, Ernest. And I would think to myself, and I would pray to myself, God, either save this man or move him away. <laughs> I just share that with you to encourage you as you seek to identify and intercede and invest and invite that you will be refused. And that's not reason to give up. No, you keep being that stretcher carrier. Because faith finds a way. Faith works. Faith keeps on keeping on. Faith stops at nothing. It rips roofs off houses to bring people to Jesus. And when you have faith like that, extraordinary things happen. 